This is Africa Digest. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice, the African perspective broadcasting from Johannesburg. We are on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. I'm Tracy Bubengard driving the show with Jualani Tula, Wasani Matibula and Tabiso Ntema. Your top stories on Africa Digest this hour. The Zimbabwean government is making frantic efforts to enroll more than 300 children of refugees from Mozambique who are reportedly failing to attend school. The 258 doctors out of 500 from Tanzania who were to be sent to Kenya to take over as foreign medics after a long strike of Kenyan doctors have been ensured that they will be employed in local public hospitals with immediate effect. The government of Cameroon has restored internet connectivity to the country's two English-speaking regions after a three-month blackout. But first, the news with Jualani. Thank you, Tracy. Good afternoon. Four people have been killed in two separate suicide attacks in northeast Nigeria today. According to officials, the first incident occurred in Mamanti village in the country's northeast where three female suicide bombers were intercepted by the vigilantes while trying to sneak into the village. Two of the bombers then blew themselves up while the third was shot dead by a soldier before her explosives detonated. The other incident is reported to have taken place in the west of the country. A male suicide bomber blew himself up among vigilantes, killing three and injuring two. Maiduguri is the birthplace of Boko Haram and has been repeatedly targeted in attacks by the militant group. Still in Nigeria, officials of the in the northern state of Kano say the country's second most powerful traditional ruler, Emir Sanusi Lamido Sanusi, is being investigated for corruption. Sanusi, who was Sanusi rather, who was Nigeria's central bank governor, is accused of mismanaging funds belonging to the Emirate. The BBC's Habiba Amdu reports. The head of the Kano State and Corruption Agency, Muhyima Gaji, told the BBC that they received several complaints of financial misconduct against the Emir, and some senior officials of the Emirate had been summoned for questioning. The eloquent and flamboyant Emir has been known for controversy. As governor of the central bank, he was sacked by then-President Goodluck Jonathan shortly after he accused the government of mismanaging billions of dollars. The controversy continued even after he was coronated in 2015. Investigators say the current probe is not political because they have evidence of financial misconduct against the Emir. Kenya has arrested suspects and recovered a gun linked to the shooting of Italian-born conservationist Kuki Galman at a conservation park over the weekend. The 73-year-old author was shot in the stomach on Sunday in Laikipia in the north. The recovered firearm is undergoing ballistic tests to confirm whether it was the gun used to shoot Galman. Police have described the attack as an isolated act of banditry.
Algeria's foreign ministry has summoned that Moroccan ambassador to the rather the Moroccan ambassador to deny accusations by his country that Algiers had expelled 55 Syrians across their shared border. In a statement, the ministry described the allegations as undermining. The Syrians were sent across the frontier near the desert of Figug. Morocco condemned its neighbors' inhumane behavior towards the migrants, who included women and children, in a very vulnerable situation. It says the expulsion was contrary to the rules of good, good neighbor, rather good neighborhoodliness, and advocated by Morocco. And finally, the World Health Organization's African Regional Director Matsidi Somoeti says the world's first vaccine against malaria has the potential to save thousands of lives. Ghana, Kenya and Malawi will pilot the vaccine developed by British drug maker GlaxoSmithKline from 2018. It will involve more than 750,000 children aged between 5 and 17 months, Moiti explains. The program will be implemented in close collaboration with the ministries of health of these three participating countries and a range of in-country and international partners. And the vaccine will be assessed as a complementary intervention that can be added to our proven preventive diagnostic and treatment measures. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Jwalani. The Zimbabwean government is making frantic efforts to enroll more than 300 children of refugees from Mozambique who are reportedly failing to attend school. Following some disturbances in neighboring Mozambique recently, thousands of families fled to Tongogara refugee camp, which is already failing to cope with overcrowding. A total of 8,982 refugees are being housed at Tungogara refugee camp, although the country's total population stands at 10,563. Due to donor failure, donor fatigue aid has been reduced to the donor community with the USA, which results with rather which remains the largest donor in Zimbabwe, recently having announced a 50% cut under the Trump administration. Mozambicans are the worst affected, officials have revealed. Salman Muchemwa reports from the Tongogara camp. Refugee camps throughout the world are meant to offer solace to the distressed fleeing their homes for various reasons. While it is the responsibility of the host nation to make sure refugees coming from outside the country are properly taken care of, the opposite could be true at the only camp in Zimbabwe. During a visit at Tongogara refugee camp, the only center in the country near Mozambican border, officials revealed more than 300 children are yet to attend school. Although there are various reasons for the said state of affairs, lack of resources were blamed as the major hindrances. Following an exodus of thousands of Mozambicans to Zimbabwe recently, Tongogara camp was overcrowded and so was the only school at the center. This resulted in the children of Mozambican nationals failing to attend school. Alec Mulambo, the school head, revealed during an interview to Channel Africa. Why is it that the Mozambican children are yet to be enrolled in school? 
is the authority we are still waiting for from the district office. Uh-huh. We have got the DSI, so I submitted the request to him, and he also further submitted something to head office or to other upper offices. So we are still waiting for the authority to be granted to us so that we can now enroll the, the Mozambicans. Otherwise, without that, we cannot do it. Right for now. how long have they been in the community without attending school? Yeah, these people, we are here, say, from January. As we opened the schools in January, the Mozambicans were already here, but there were some logistical arrangements that were still being carried out by the camp itself in terms of where to put them and what to provide. And then we had also to look at the kids, say, around Feb, to try and come up with a figure which is, needs to, to be here at school. And we had to prepare that information in document form, which was then submitted to the Minister of Education. And the DSI, I think, is quite aware of this one. And he must be the one who is to, who is to action everything now from there, from that level. How many are they? We had 360. Joannis Mlanga, a refugee officer, had this to say. We have appealed for the deployment of teachers to Toga refugee camp to cater for the, the, the children for, from Mozambique. But recently and up to date, we have witnessed an inordinate delay in deploying teachers to Tonga primaries. The camp administrator, Mishik Zengeya, added the refugee camp has educational limits with regards Mozambicans. We also have got problems with the education department, especially the A-level school. We used to send a lot of children to do their A-level schools in the boarding schools, which are in Manikali. But because of shortage of money, UNSCR is claiming that they don't have enough money now to let these people continue to go out and we are saying let's open a secondary school uh, I mean an A-level school at St. Michael's secondary school but we have some limits financially uh, we have JRS they are assisting us very much in trying to put what the Ministry of Education would like us to do like uh, they are saying there is need for a laboratory and uh, a good administration block they are busy doing that. Mutlanga said the Mozambicans are not catered for by the current budgets. It suffice to mention that currently the budgets that we have do not accommodate the Mozambicans. We appeal for your assistance and intervention to address the following challenges. On one hand, Minister of Social Services Priska Mpumira was shocked and promised to investigate. I need to go and liaise and discuss with my colleagues the issue of education, the building, the offer which we have from the NHCR. I need to understand why, if the monies are available, why we can't engage the teachers. So I need to bring my colleagues here from education, from civil protection, from health, so that we work together as a team because we are one government. Meanwhile, Tongogara refugee camp that covers a total of 870 hectares is between a game sanctuary and a crocodile-infected survey river, reducing chances of any expansions. Reporting for Channel Africa at Tongogara refugee camp, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. 
The 258 doctors out of 500 from Tanzania who were to be sent to Kenya to take over as foreign medics after a long strike of Kenyan doctors have been assured by President of Tanzania, John Magavuli, to be employed in local government uh, public rather hospitals with immediate effect. Speaking with journalists in Dodoma, the capital of Tanzania, the Minister for Health, Community Development, Gender, Elderly and Children, Ms. Umi Mwalimu, says the sometimes for some times now the government has failed to employ medical doctors due to shortage of funds. And even with this recruitment, it was President John Magofule who knew where the funds would come from. Our reporter Gabriel Zakaria from Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, has filed this report. As the government of Tanzania announces on Thursday last week the immediate hiring of 258 doctors among those who were to be sent to Kenya, the key question of where the recruitment budget came from remained unanswered. Addressing a press conference on weekend, the Minister for Health, Community Development, Gender, Elderly and Children, Ms. Umi Mwalimu, says after President John Magufuli found out that there was a dilly-darling on the Kenya side over the hiring of doctors it had requested in March, he thought it was prudent for him to immediately absorb the medics internally. Ms. Mwalimu explains more. Dr. John Pombe Magufuli. His Excellency, the President of the United Republic of Tanzania, John Magufuli, announced that the 258 doctors who were to be sent to Kenya be employed with our government with immediate effect. However, through you, the media, I would like to inform the doctors who qualified for employment to visit the ministry's website and check their names before coming to our office. The medic names will be uploaded soon on our website together with 11 specialists who will also be employed. She says according to an agreement between the two countries, the doctors were supposed to travel to Kenya between April 6 and 10. Tanzania is said to have a shortage number of medics despite many doctors who are jobless in the country. Reacting to the announcement of employing 258 doctors who are qualified to be sent to Kenya, the president of Medical Association of Tanzania, Mate Dr. Obadia Nyongole, says... Kwa niaba ya madaktari wenzangu na chama cha madaktari Tanzania tumshukuru mheshimiwa Dr. John Pombe eh, Joseph Magufuli Rais wa Jamhuri ya Muungano wa Tanzania on behalf of the Association of Doctors of Tanzania, I applaud the President of Tanzania, His Excellency John Magufuli, for a quick reaction he made toward the offer to a number of doctors who were to be sent to Kenya. As you may recall, we as an association of doctors have earlier condemned the action of our government sending our colleagues to go to work in Kenya while we have a huge shortage of medics in the country. But apart from commending the president for giving an offer to 58 doctors, we still ask him to give an offer to more than 1,000 doctors who are still waiting for the government employment for almost four years now. It is indeed good news to Tanzanians after this message of hope from the President's office to announce the offer of employment to doctors who succumbed a long period with no job 
Mimi naona ni jambo jema. The president did a wise decision to announce the employment to medical doctors in local public hospitals because even in our country there is still a big gap of doctors. Instead of sending them to Kenya, better they employed in our hospitals. Let it be a routine to offer employment to our doctors as soon as they graduate. Let the government not wait until the medics stop from Kenya or another country and start to show the concern to them. Let it be a routine to award qualified doctors a permanent employment. According to the Medical Association of Tanzania, the decision made by President John Magufuli was aimed at curbing the shortage of doctors in public hospitals after a long struggle of the ministry to employ the doctors failed due to lack of funds to curtail the shortage. Dr. Obadia Nyongole again. We still experience a deficit of more than 3,000 medics in our hospitals. This is a reason for us to compliment the president for his decision to employ 258 doctors and we are asking again to continue the spirit and award the remaining medics an offer to curb the shortage of doctors. Three weeks ago, Employment and Labor Relations Court of Kenya issued a temporary stop order for the Nairobi government from employing foreign medics. Five Kenyan medics had sued to stop their government from hiring 500 Tanzanian doctors while there were hundreds of unemployed Kenyan medics. Reporting for Channel Africa in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, this is Gabriel Zakaria. Malawi has disclosed plans to embark on mass registration of citizens for national identity cards. The project, which will be carried out by the National Registration Bureau under the Ministry of Home Affairs, conducted the exercise between June and December this year. National identity cards will be issued to all citizens aged 16 years and above. George Mango reports. Malawian children under the age of 16 will also be registered once their parents and guardians take them to registration centers upon the start of the project. Phases 1 and 2 cover districts in the central region. Phases 3 and 4 cover southern region-based districts, while phase 5 is due to cover districts in the northern region. Up to 2,000 registration teams will be deployed to register Malawian citizens in registration centers countrywide. The mass registration is an opportunity for every Malawian to have their own national ID card to make it possible for the ID card holder to show their eligibility for multiple purposes. The cards will also allow Malawians to have access to free primary education, social services like health care, and to meet financial requirements such as getting a bank loan. Gerard Mkandawire. We get patients from as far as Mozambique, Tanzania and Zambia, we assist them because of uh, lack of IDs, but uh, when we ask them about the originality, they claim to be from within the border. This is why I say if the IDs are introduced, it will be easier to trace true citizens of Malawi.
and those from Mozambique, Tanzania and Zambia. A medical practitioner says without IDs it is difficult to certify that the patients they are helping are Malawians. Malawians describe this as a plausible move. I have faced tough times getting loans because of lack of evidence that I'm indeed a Malawian. This sounds good news and it is my hope that there will not be any form of corruption attached. At the same time, I hope government will move with speed for us to have such a document. Government has to ensure that the nation ID is a once-off payment thing and without any expiration date. At the same time, authorities should not use it as a tool to raise revenue like it does with passports. In driver's licenses. It's good to have IDs as the case with other countries like South Africa, Zimbabwe and Zambia. For how long are you going to use passport and driving license? We should learn from other countries and move. To register for the national ID, Malawian citizens must provide proof of their citizenship by providing valid identification documents such as licenses, birth certificates, voter IDs, and if one does not have these, chiefs have to certify his or her citizenship. Government started the first ever mass registration process last year with 5,000 people. The project was dubbed a milestone for the government as Malawians were subjected to the use of driving licenses, passports, and voter registration certificates as proof of their citizenship wherever needed. Malawi is the only country in the Sadiq region without such IDs for its citizens. Malawi has a population of 16 million people. The National Registration Bureau was established in 2007 to oversee the process of issuing national identity documents. George Muhango, Blantyre. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The government of Cameroon has restored internet connection to the country's two English-speaking regions after a three-month blackout. It is believed that they bow to pressure from the United Nations. It's unclear whether this will be enough to restart dialogue to end the unrest that began in November. And the government responded by stopping internet supply to troubled areas, blaming the population of using the facility to spread anti-state propaganda. Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. Abeng Sylvan assists students of the University of Yaoundé 1 in their computer research work at this makeshift roadside cyber cafe. He transferred to Yaoundé from Bamenda three months ago when an internet blackout was imposed by the government. Abeng Sylvan says he is ready to return to Bamenda where he had had so many customers. I was almost losing hope, paying my rent and all the light bills was really difficult since I was mainly operating the internet. But when I heard it came, I was happy. But Abeng Sylvan may have to wait again for supply to be totally re-established. Cameroon government spokesperson Issa Chiroma Bakari announced that supply would be reinstated gradually. Fru Karin, who runs another cyber cafe in Bamenda, 
told me she had submitted a complaint to the Cameroon Telecommunications Agency that supplies the internet services. The internet came yesterday in the evening. It is functional, but since morning we are not able to have connection. I'm intending to meet Camtel to see if there is a technical fault with our lines. Let them rectify it. Supply was reinstated in the English-speaking regions of Cameroon after a three-month blackout imposed by the government to stop people from using social media for anti-state propaganda messages. The blackout followed a strike action by teachers and lawyers that degenerated when anglophones complaining of marginalization began using social media to press for what they called the independence of English-speaking from French-speaking Cameroon. Last week, the United Nations asked Cameroon to reinstate internet supply. François Losensi Fall, the Secretary General's Special Representative in Central Africa, said under the reconnection of the internet and frank dialogue will enable Cameroon to solve its long-standing anglophone problem. There were also protests in Cameroon for officials to bring back the internet. Che Divine of Cameroon Net, a security surveillance enterprise that also relocated to Yaoundé, says he is sure the government of Cameroon bowed to pressure from internet users and the United Nations to reinstate supply. To me, it is a bold step that the government has taken to solve a problem. You know, the people were cut off and they knew they were not part of the Republic of Cameroon. But now that the internet has been given back to them, they feel involved, they feel being a citizen in a country. Cameroon's Minister of Post and Telecommunications, Libom Lilikeng, says although the service is now back, they will intensify controls to make sure it is not used for wrong purposes. She says she will not disclose their strategy, but that the government is very organized because there is an agency that is equipped to control internet use and adds that Cameroon's security forces have platforms to track and control people just as it is done in all other countries. She says she wants to recall that the goal of the government is to encourage digital economy and the use of social media, but she is telling Cameroonians not to abuse the instrument promoted by the highest authority of the land, that people should use the Internet responsibly. Internet users in the affected parts of the country found out that they could no longer communicate and disseminate information particularly on social media three months ago when no prior notice had been given by the government. Cameroon said peace was returning to the regions and that is why internet supply has been re-established. But it may not calm the strikers who have paralyzed business and kept schools closed asking for the liberation of all people arrested because of the supply and the demilitarization of Anglophone Cameroon, where thousands of soldiers were deployed. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. South Africa is this year marking 23 years since it attained its freedom. The country is rated among the best in hosting successful free and fair elections since April 1994. To commemorate this, the University of South Africa, 
UNISA is hosting the fourth annual Paul Bregelia Bam Chair in the U- Electoral Democracy in Africa Colloquium. Support, uh, supported by the National Institute for the Humanities and Human- Social Sciences, the theme for 2017 is Local Government Democracy Dynamics in Africa, What Works, What Doesn't, and Why. To discuss this further, we have on the line in What Works, What Doesn't, um, on the line, Professor Kileboche Mapunye, Whiphold Brigalia Bam Chair in the Electoral Pro- Democracy in Africa, Department of Political Science, College of Human Sciences at the University of South Africa's UNISA. Welcome to Channel Africa, Professor. Good afternoon. Sounds like a mouthful, but uh, thank you for inviting me. It's not a problem. I thought it was a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Professor, so tell us about the purpose of the colloquium. Uh, Tracy, just briefly, uh, the purpose of the colloquium, uh, as you mentioned in your intro, is to celebrate, really, the... uh, you know, um, anniversary of South Africa's uh, democracy since 1994, uh, April 27th. But apart from that, uh, at UNISA, as and also as the chair in electoral democracy, we have been uh, hosting an annual colloquium every year since 2012, focusing on different themes. This year's theme, obviously, as you mentioned, is about local government, but the previous ones focused on issues such as, uh, you know, ethics, accountability and fairness, the role of EMBs or election management bodies in, in democracy, as well as in elections, as well as, uh, you know, the, the, the very issue around uh, uh, what we can do uh, ourselves as uh, uh, people who are in the elections management fraternity to improve democracy in Africa in terms of consolidation. Now, what came out of day one of this? Quite a mouthful. But in short, uh, the participants raised issues uh, that, uh, you know, relate to a number of issues. For instance, the issue of uh, uh, citizens. What can citizens, you know, do to participate in a democracy? In fact, what kind of participation mechanisms are there? And, of course, we had uh, also about uh, um, uh, some of the uh, methods that are normally used by uh, communities whenever they are disaffected, when they are, you know, unhappy, they go to the streets. Some of them in countries such as South Africa have even, you know, used... uh, methods that are, you know, generally condemned by, you know, um, uh, those people who prefer peaceful, generally peaceful methods, such as, uh, you know, um, um, burning tires and using clearly, uh, you know, issues that might be uh, referred to as being violent. But uh, um, some of the participants mentioned that the reason why some of the uh, communities normally resort to such, you know, mechanisms and methods is because of the frustration of uh, not uh, getting a positive response or even a response at all from local government councillors from their local you know, government authorities as well as those people who would have been elected you know, in previous elections. Professor, we're just going to quickly go to the headlines and then we're going to come back to you. Thank you so much. Okay. Good afternoon, I'm Jelani Tulo making headlines. Four people have been killed in two separate suicide attacks in northeast Nigeria. Kenya has arrested suspects and recovered a gun linked to the shooting of Italian-born conservationist Kuki Galman at her conservation park over the weekend. And finally, the World Health Organization's African Regional Director, Matsiri Somweti, says the world's first vaccine against malaria has the potential to save thousands of lives. For Channel Africa, I'm Jelani Tulo.
Thanks, Jualani. We are joined on the line with Professor Kelebocha Mapunye Wiphold Brigeliabem, Chair in the Electoral Democracy and Africa Department of Political Science College of Human Sciences at the University of South Africa, UNISA, speaking to us uh, on the colloquium. Thank you, Professor, for holding. Thank you very much. Well, South Africa is rated among the best in hosting successful free and fair elections. What can this be attributed to? Mainly, this can be attributed to uh, what we normally call founding elections. <clears throat> Excuse me. In 1994, uh, we are aware that uh, South Africa held or conducted this groundbreaking you know, election that obviously you know, uh, brought to power uh, the, the, the world's famous, I can say that, one of uh, the world's famous uh, you know, um, uh, the, and the late uh, president of South Africa, uh, Nelson Mandela. You know, out of prison to become the, the first president of uh, this, uh, you know, newly uh, democratized country. So, uh, since then, the subsequent elections that have been held uh, were held under very, very strict, you know, international election management best practices, which have sought to underscore the legitimacy of the outcome. In other words, uh, the idea is to ensure that uh, whoever wins has you know, the will of the people in terms of the numbers that would have voted. And to that extent, the Electoral Commission of South Africa, or the IEC for short, has endeavored to stick to those uh, principles, some of which are in the African Charter on Democracy, Elections and Governance, but some of which are also in the uh, African, or, or, uh, African Union you know, principles on democracy and elections. So to that extent, the idea was to make sure that we have uh, you know, African best practices in terms of holding elections. And this is mainly attributed uh, the fact that South Africa is being hailed as among, you know, those countries which are foremost, in my view, in terms of, uh, you know, election management best practices is precisely attributed to that. However, there's also the issue of making sure that uh, uh, this democracy that, uh, you know, people are talking about in terms of elections, they also, you know, practice it such that they, are, they have freedom of speech, freedom, uh, you know, to criticize the leaders that would have been elected, also freedom, uh, you know, to change them as and when, you know, the need to change them, you know, arises. And to that extent, uh, in spite of its teething problems that it has experienced through, through, uh, since 1994, South Africa has shown that at least the power of the ballot can still be, you know, said to be practiced in Africa. Now, what sort of issues will be covered over the next two days? Uh, in the next two days, obviously, we are now going into our full program. We have, uh, you know, still have an, a few, you know, papers that are lined up between, uh, you know, tomorrow in the morning up until in the evening. In the evening, we also have a gala dinner. Uh, but uh, tomorrow, the first session that, that, that kicks, uh, you know, off is looking at the issue of uh, uh, um, uh, the impact of technology on local politics, uh, specifically the uh, use of uh, social media. Uh, we've got a very exciting, you know, paper that's going to be coming. Apart from that, uh, you know, we'll be continuing with uh, the dynamics of local government community structures, looking at, uh, you know, local government in Zimbabwe, looking at the paradox of, uh, you know, uh, democracy and the culture in Botswana, government, uh, local government participation, looking at uh, Kenya, uh, you know, tangible dividends of state reform. I'm, I'm actually going through some of the papers that are going to be presented. Also, there's going to be a paper on Nigeria, the challenge of demo- democratic governance and sustainable development at local government, uh, you know, level, the, the perspective of, of Nigeria. There are also gender issues, uh, gender representation in local government that's also going to be you know, discussed tomorrow. Professor, thank you so much. 
Wonderful. Thank you very much. And we, are, we value your support. Uh, keep disseminating the information about the colloquium. Obviously, it's not going to end with us. We would also like to engage with all, the, all those people who could not uh, you know, uh, attend. They can visit our website at unisa, www.unisa.ac.za. And, of course, they can also you know, uh, engage with us in other platforms uh, because this is quite important for us to uh, you know, can continue reaching you know, other parts of the continent so that we can share this issue around knowledge on elections. Thank you very much, Professor. That, Thank you very much. That was Professor Kalebohe Mapunye, Wipold Bregalia BAM Chair in the Electoral Democracy and Africa Department of Political Science at the College of Human Sciences at the University of South Africa or UNISA. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. The political life of South Africa's governing African National Congress revolves around factional battles for power and corruption. This is an admission contained in one of the ruling party's discussion documents, the organizational renewal. Hosting a discussion on the document, the party's headquarters at Lutuli House in Johannesburg yesterday, National Executive Committee member Fikile Mbalula announced a raft of new policy proposals intended at overhauling the functioning and appeal of Africa's oldest liberation movement. Tsepo Ikaneng filed this report. With less than two months left before the ANC's crucial national policy conference, the party has tasked its members and leadership to debate on the state of the organization. The ruling party is still reeling from major voter support losses for control of key metros during last year's local government polls. At the heart of the ANC's poor showing is deepening divisions, factionalism and government corruption. ANC National Executive Committee member Fiki Lembalula says the political life of the ruling party revolves around factional battles for power. The danger of social distance and isolation of the party from the masses, the danger of state bureaucratic and demobilization of the masses, the danger of corruption and sins of incumbency, the danger of institutionalized factionalism, ill-discipline and disunity, fueled and inspired by the battles over the control of, of state power and resources. The ANC says it's also concerned with the level of ill-discipline displayed by most of the party's top leaders. ANC infighting have escalated since President Jacob Zuma's controversial cabinet reshuffle with ministers openly opposing each other in public. Mbalula said the party had plans to rein in defiant leaders. 
So when a member of the ANC expressed their view, point, politically, either by being deployed or uh, invited by structures, they must understand their responsibility in the organization. Now, responsibility of political leadership at the level of the ANC, NEC, means you must think before you open your mouth. Meaning, their rights as members of the NEC are limited. Members of the NEC must always articulate policy and display maximum discipline. Meanwhile, the ANC is forging ahead in opening up leadership contestation to counter incidents of manipulation of the electoral process through vote buying. The use of money during campaigns for leadership positions has been singled out as one of the major challenges that continues to sow divisions within the ruling party. You undermine slates because we've been talking about slates, you are right, but uh, what have we done about slates? We have not done anything. Slates are continuing unabated. We seek to open up the discussion. Can't we infuse in the electoral processes for people to openly express their desire to lead and stop printing funny t-shirts? Let them express themselves. Why do they think they want to become leaders of the NC? But it is time now, given the explosion, to begin to allow people to express themselves because it is going to be money exchange hands and the richest will be the one who win power. The ANC says the establishment of the Revolutionary Electoral Commission will ensure that all its employees are fit and proper to discharge their mandate. According to a discussion document on organizational renewal, the Electoral Commission will screen and recommend members to key positions in government and other public sector institutions. So the Revolutionary Council will enable us to unpack the question of leadership so that we don't elect fly-by-nights and we don't elect, uh, you know, bombsegezeg. We need leaders with impeccable track record. And how are we going to go about to elect those leaders? That is why the notion of revolutionary council. Because if you are in a slate, you can be elected without being properly examined and not even known by branches of the NC. You can be elected and become a powerful leader and we ask ourselves, where does he come from? When he's already been elected because he was a product of a slate. The ANC has also remained firm in rejecting the call by party veterans that a consultative conference be staged before the June policy conference. Tsepo Ikaning in Johannesburg. The United Cities local government, Africa, recently held a workshop in Rabat, capital of the Kingdom of Morocco, on the access of local and regional authorities in Africa to climate finance. Jean-Pierre Ilangmbasi, United Cities, Cities rather local government, Africa Secretary General, explains. Well, you may be aware that the international community signed the what is known as the Paris Agreement at the COP21 in Paris. And this agreement says that we will make every effort to hold the increase in global warming below 2 degrees Celsius by the middle of the century, and that it even be more suitable to limit the global warming of the planet below 1.5 degrees. So in order to meet this target, the international community resolved to set up the Green Climate Fund, which should mobilize at least 100 billion U.S. dollars per year from 2020 onwards in order to assist developing countries to implement mitigation and adaptation action plans to climate change. 
And at the COP22 held in Marrakesh, African local authorities tabled three requests. The first one was to open a window at the Green Climate Fund that will specifically receive the request presented by subnational and local governments. This is what's number one. Number two, we asked that a capacity building and technical assistance program be defined to enable African subnational and local government prepare eligible requests for funding at the Climate Fund. And number three, to have the UCLG Africa accredited as an implementing agency of the Green Climate Fund. So the workshop that we organized in uh, Rabat aimed at assessing where we are pertaining to these three questions. Then what would you say, where are we with regards to what you have just uh, enumerated? You know, when we were in Marrakesh at COP22, we didn't receive any clear response to our expectations. And you should bear in mind that under the protocol, the Kyoto Protocol, you remember the predecessor of the Paris Agreement, the Kyoto Protocol defined two instruments for the funding of climate plans, which was the Clean Development Mechanism and the Carbon Market. And under these two instruments, only 3% of the fund mobilized under the Clean Development Mechanism and under the Carbon Market reached Africa, despite the fact that our region is the least developed in the world and that we are uh, paying huge consequences of climate change, having in the overhand participated so little to the global warming. This is why we say that we don't want to miss again the opportunity of this new instrument. So we need to have a support for the preparedness to meet the requirement set forth for the eligible proposal to the green climate change. Time now for economic news with Wissani Matibula. Time now for our economic update with Wisani Matibula. In your economics news right now, South African rand continuing to strengthen against a basket of uh, major currencies as the U.S. dollar weakens. The rand has gained nearly 2% to its strongest level in three weeks against the dollar. Economists attribute the rebound in the local currency to a combination of local and international factors. Currently, the rand is trading at 12.88 to the dollar. Market analyst Patrick Matidi says uh, the markets appear to have cheered by the outcome of the first round of the French election and some stability in the South African market. Okay, there is some level of stability uh, post the announcement of the new finance minister. So to the extent that he has been at pains uh, to give assurances that that policy has not changed uh, despite all the noise around radical economic transformation and the likes. 
but also we also know that he's uh, traveling overseas uh, seeing some, uh, some investors. And on the back of that, we have seen a lot of foreign buying of uh, domestic bonds. So as foreigners buy bonds, they need rent, and the rent drive into the... Uh, but over and above that, I think the global uh, political scenario is also very supportive. Nigeria Central Bank says it will let the market determine the Naira's rate in a new foreign exchange window for portfolio investors as the nation struggles to revive its economy amid a U.S. dollar shortage. Central Bank Governor Godwin Mfiele told senior bankers that he would tolerate the Naira weakening. While the currency may depreciate to its black market level, the central bank probably won't devalue the Naira's official rate. Nigeria has suffered from a shortage of foreign exchange after the price of oil collapsed. And gold prices have fallen the most in more than seven weeks as investors returned to riskier assets on speculation that pro-growth centrist Emmanuel Macron will become France's next president after the first round of voting, potentially removing a threat to the Eurozone from one of the region's top economies. Bullion for immediate delivery tumbled as much as 1.5%. The commodity dropped along with the Japanese yen as the euro surged. Investors have been watching the French vote as an event that could reshape local and potentially European politics for years to come. Gold is usually desired during turbulent times with great volatility. South Africa is one of the world's leading gold producers is likely to fill the pinch of the fall in gold prices. And the General Secretary of South African Federation of Trade Unions, Zuelinzi Mavavi, has warned government that SAFTU will put it to task on various matters such as unemployment. This after the official launch of the new federation. Vavi says the federation seeks to build a different type of workers' organization that is independent of political parties. He has been addressing the media after a three-day conference that elected its leadership on Sunday. Government, the days when you can laugh when our home is burning are over. Mm. Employers, you have been on a holiday for 23 years but helping to continue the status quo. We will take you on a battle if you want to continue the current status quo of labor brokering, outsourcing, low pay, neglect of the workers' interest. And the South African Competition Commission will conduct an investigation into the alleged anti-competitive conduct of pharmaceutical giant Aspen Pharmacare. Opposition DA Member of Parliament Wilmot James, who approached the Commission and the Medicines Control Council, says any anti-competitive behaviour will push up the price of medication. Aspen shares dropped late last week after British reports claimed it had secretly planned to destroy life-saving cancer medicine as a threat to force countries in Europe to allow price hikes. Financial indicators now, the U.S. dollar has weakened to against the South African rand now at 12.88. South African rand at 10.22, Botswana Pula at 9.4, Zambian Guacha also trading at 0.78 to the British pound and 0.93 against the euro. The commodities market, gold $1,281, platinum $973. Per fine ounce, brand crude oil $52.90 per barrel. That's your economics news for now.
Time now for the sports update. Good evening sports fans, I'm Tabison Tema with the latest sports update at this hour. We begin with boxing news. South Africa has a new world champion. This after Filipino boxer Arthur Villanueva sustained the second defeat of his pro career, losing a 12-round unanimous decision to South African Solani Tete on Saturday night at the Leicester Arena in Leicester, England. The fight, originally scheduled to be an elimination bout to determine the mandatory challenger for the WBO bantamweight title, was elevated to an interim title fight after Marlon Tepals was stripped of his championship for missing weight prior to his defense against Shonei Omori of Japan. This is how the three judges scored the one-side fight in which Tete outlast his opponent. Ladies and gentlemen, after 12 rounds of championship boxing, we go to the judges' scorecards where we have a unanimous decision. Judge Phil Edwards and Judge Rose Lassend in agreement. They score the contest 119 to 108 and Ingo Barabas scores it 120 to 107. Unanimous in agreement. For our new interim WBO Bantamweight Champion of the World, Solani Tete. So Solani Tete with a wide unanimous decision, points victory over Arthur Villanueva of the Philippines. 119 to 108, twice four judges, Phil Edwards and Rose Lestand. Ingo Barabas scoring it a shutout, 120-108 in favour of the South African. And that is why he has that WBO strap proudly around his waist. Boxing South Africa board member Dr. Peter Ngatani says they are working with the family of the former South African boxing trainer Nick Durant, who passed on last Friday. Durant died in a motorbike accident in the Free State. Durant, who was the president of the Crusaders Bike Club, reportedly collided with a vehicle on the road between Bethlehem and Clarence. Natani says even though Durant had retired early this year, he was working on making a comeback. He retired uh, last year and early this year in our annual uh, um, award ceremony. He was given a lifetime achievement. Uh, and funny enough, uh, in that in, in his accept, acceptance speech, he intimated that he might want to come back because, uh, you know, boxing is like a, a disease. Once it bites you, it's difficult to get rid of it. During uh, uh, this year's uh, uh, license renewal, he had indicated that uh, he had uh, he wanted to renew his license as a, as a trainer manager, but unfortunately, death has uh, overtaken the whole processes. On to rugby news. A Sansa Judicial Committee has found Shark Center Andre Estreisen guilty of contravening Law 10.4J, which bars the lifting of the player from the ground and either dropping or driving the player's head down or upper body into the ground while the player's feet are off the ground. Estreisen was issued with a red card during the Super Rugby match against the Rebels in Deben on Saturday. As a result, Estreisen has been suspended for six weeks. Meanwhile, Sharks captain Teram Tembu regretted his team's performance following a 9-all draw against the visiting Rebels. 
I think it felt like a loss. I think we were nowhere today. Um, we set ourselves goals. We didn't achieve them. I think well done to the to the Rebels. They put us under a lot of pressure. And I think they deserve the game today. It's no excuse, you know. Everyone that's in the squad should be able to step up. And unfortunately, we didn't today. We let our fans down. Another performance that we're proud of. In tennis news, Maria Sharapova returns after a 15-month doping ban on Wednesday, desperate to rediscover the glory which brought her five Grand Slams, the world's top ranking, and a spectacular multi-million dollar lifestyle. The poster girl of women's tennis won't necessarily be welcomed back with open arms by her rivals who were already suspicious of the towering Russian's ice-cold detachment even before her fall from grace. However... Sharapova isn't losing any sleep as she prepares for her first match since being defeated by Serena Williams in the 2016 Australian Open quarterfinals. Organizers of the fifth edition of the Okpepe International 10km road race have named one of Nigeria's foremost sports medicine practitioners, Dr. Akinwami Amau, as the chief anti-doping officer for the International Associations of Athletics Federations, popularly known as the IWAF, for the bronze label race scheduled to be held next month in Okpepe, near Auchi, in the Endo State. That's your spot at this hour. Stay tuned on Channel Africa for sports, news and programming from the African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Recapping the top stories this hour, the Zimbabwean government is making frantic efforts to enroll more than 300 children of refugees from Mozambique. The 258 doctors out of 500 from Tanzania who were to be sent to Kenya to take over as foreign medics after a long strike of Kenyan doctors are to be employed in local public hospitals with immediate effect. The government of Cameroon has restored internet connection to the country's two English-speaking regions after a three-month blackout. Well, that wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, Tracy Bumgard, technical producer, Tabocha Motswewo, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. For comments on the show, you can send an email to info at channelafrica.org. Taking us to the top of the hour is Berno Boy with Before.
Sunday, Daniel.